From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schachman. Thank you for joining us. On this episode, our own Rachel Keith sits down to unpack her ongoing reporting into a strange and frustrating story. Over $10 million in federally grant-funded work in New Hanover County produced thousands of pages of reports and mountains of data, all supporting the best ways to reduce school violence. So what's the problem? Well, it's all missing. Rachel's tracked down proof that the seven-year program really did happen and interviewed the former program evaluator, and she'll share that reporting with us today. And later in the program, we'll sit down with Nada Morgani. We last spoke about advocacy work during the George Floyd protests, but Nada has since moved on into journalism, and that's not always the easiest transition. We'll talk about that and her recent reporting. But first, friend of the show, Frances Weller. Most of you will know her as the anchor over at our media partner, WECT News. That's where she's been for 40 years. Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho recently proclaimed the last day in May as Francis Weller Day. That's an honor I'm not aware of any other journalist in our region having. So congratulations, Fran, and thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, it, I'm still walking on air from that proclamation. I mean, I was so surprised, so stunned, and uh, just deeply honored. But, you know, like you, I don't know of any other journalist who's had a day proclaimed in their honor, and I was mm, deeply honored. So you didn't you did not know this was coming? No, I had no clue. None whatsoever. Um, I had been told that the mayor was probably going to come in, but I thought he was going to come in and say congratulations, you know, that type of thing. But a proclamation, a day named after me. No, I had no clue. And of course, I looked really silly on TV because I cried. Well, you know, journalists are people, too. We are. Especially on your very own eponymous day. Yes. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So take me back. Take me back 40 years somehow to when you started at WZD. Isn't that crazy? Yes. I'm serious. There are days even now that I'm thinking 40 years? My God, that is a really long time. That's four decades. So 40 years ago, I knew that I wanted to be in television. I determined that very early on. Uh, I used to read newspaper articles and magazine articles to my family when I was old enough to read, like in the eighth grade. And I was editor of my newspaper. So I knew journalism was somewhere in my blood. But I think it was my senior year in college, I was watching a lot of news. And I said, I really want to do that. And so I um, wanted to get an internship at WRAL. I went to apply for that. And The news director quickly discovered that I just really wanted to be on TV. I knew nothing about television. And I'll never forget her words. She said, don't call us. We'll call you. So I was then determined I'm going to get on television. And what better place to start than in my hometown? And so I expressed an interest in television to anyone who would listen, including my mother, And she happened to know the wife of the owner of the TV station. And she calls me one day and she says, so Betty says, if you can be in Dan's office by three o'clock, he will talk to you. Well, I'm in Raleigh. It's 10 o'clock and I-40 has not been built yet. But Dan Cameron wants you in his office by three. He wants me in the office by three. So I call a friend of mine and I said, I have a television interview. Please pull out your best suit, get the lady across the street to come do my hair. I have to be in Dan Cameron's office at 3 o'clock. 
fast forward to his office and we chat and I tell him that I'd like to be a reporter and he says well I don't have any openings the only thing I have is for a receptionist if I were you I would get my foot in the door and the rest is up to you and that is literally what happened I think there's such an important lesson there for people who are aspiring to do anything is that sometimes you got to be a dishwasher you got to be a receptionist you got to just be in the building And then once you're in the building, hey, then you can make moves. You know, that receptionist job was the most important thing I could have done because I knew nothing about the television business. I knew people were on TV, but I didn't know there was a traffic department, an engineering department, a sales department, a promotions department. Being a receptionist, I learned all of that. I learned a little bit about every department. So it was really a great job to have. It really was. And so this is 1982, right? Yes. Okay. And I will tell listeners that uh, looking at you across the recording board, there is no way (laughs) this timeline tracks. It just doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) Oh, that's a compliment. Thank you. It is a compliment. But all right. Somehow, uh, 1982, you're starting. What is Wilmington like in 1982? Wow. A lot different than it is now. I, I can't. There are days really been that I'm driving down College Road or Oleander Drive, and I'm like, where am I? Because it is not the same city. You know, um, 1982, again, there was no I-40. If you traveled to Raleigh, you were taking 421, and it was taking you forever to get there. Um, the, The mall was there, but it was, you know, the parking lot was not. It didn't look anything like it looks now when you go to the mall because it has grown um like you would not believe you know there was no Mayfair there was none of that it was a much smaller city and I'd jokingly say you know I thought I would get in the business stay here for a couple years and then move to the bigger market well I didn't have to move to the bigger market the bigger market moved to me I mean this city is so different than it was in 1982. It definitely blew up around you, for it sure. It did. It did. It really did. I mean, we even changed market sizes uh, as a television station. It's it's just amazing to me what has happened to this city. But I guess I am in a minority for those of us who were born and raised here because I welcome the growth. I love it. You know, it, the city that I grew up in was small, and it was quaint, and I loved it, but I love the growth. I love to see what's happened to this beautiful city. And I think it was it was beautiful then, but it's even more so now. Is that the part of you that is a journalist because it would be kind of boring to work in a small town or you just is that like as a as a Wilmingtonian? Well, that's a great question and I have to be honest with you that yes, if if Well, first of all, I don't think I would be here 40 years later if Wilmington stayed the way it was in 1982. I mean, I just don't think so. But every year it seems like there's something new to report on, you know, new developments, challenges to those developments. Um, And so there's always news in this city because it has grown so much and it continues to grow. You know, I don't know what's next, but I can't wait to report on it. So when was it that you made it to the anchor desk? That was three years after reporting. So I started in 1982 and reported for three years. And it was right around Christmas time that the news director called me in and said, um, 
I got an early Christmas present for you. We'd like for you to anchor the evening news. And I can't even put into words what that meant to me. First of all, I was co-anchoring with a man that I grew up watching, Ken Murphy. And so that was a dream come true for my parents who were in town, because, again, I was born and raised here. For them to see their daughter anchoring the news was special. Uh, I was the first African-American in southeastern North Carolina first African-American female to anchor the evening news, and that was a proud moment for them and an incredible accomplishment for me. So um, officially it was 1986 that I started anchoring the news, and I haven't left the desk. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because my whole life watching TV news in the 80s and 90s, always white men. You know, Always. The occasional, I mean, Connie Chung was a huge deal mm-hmm. when that happened. Mm-hmm. But by and large, especially in local news, it was white guys at the desk and white guys in the field, too. What was, what was that like? Did you, get, did you get pushback? Did you get support? You know what is interesting, Ben? And this is no joke. In the 80s and 90s, I had no pushback whatsoever. And it, I, I expected it. I was prepared for it, but I never got that. I think there was one time that I was anchoring, my co-anchor Ken Murphy was off, so they had a black reporter, male, uh, fill in for him, and then we had a black guy who was doing sports that day, and someone called the newsroom and said, so what is this, the GD Soul Train? I'll never forget that. Oh, my God. Because I thought, oh, wow, okay, so here it is. But there was that one phone call, and that was it. I never really had anyone find problems because, oh, there's the black lady doing the news. No one ever said that. And keep in mind that it wasn't that long before I started anchoring the news that black people weren't even allowed to be on WECT, not even as someone being interviewed. And so I was prepared for certain things to be said and done. It didn't happen. I think there are probably more challenges now than I experienced in the 80s. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about next. And I have a funny feeling it has something to do with social media. Of uh, course it does. Of course it does. It's, um, well, I'm out of nice things to say about social media this week. But <laughs> what was that revolution like? Well, that was a revolution, too. Um, It's funny. I was talking to some people the other day. uh, We were talking about computers, and they said, Fran, when you started, did they have computers? I'm like, no, they didn't have computers. We had typewriters. And, you know, when social media uh, came about, it was, whoa, okay, I'm going to have to learn all of this. And I remember my mother was always, always anti-social media. She just didn't get the Internet. She didn't get any of that. And... She thought, you know, you're just exposing yourself to so many people around the world, not just, you know, uh, in your area or the country. So social media changed everything, and I will say in a good way and in a bad way. So to be fair, it it changed news overnight. It did. I think, you know, I started at, at Port City Daily, which mm-hmm. just could not exist without social media mm-hmm. because— if no one knows that you can go to this one website in this one dusty corner of Wilmington's local internet, how would you ever know? But right. if you put an article out, the matter if you're a two-person newsroom or a 200-person newsroom, and it's a good story, and people share it, man, it spreads like wildfire. 
It does. And I'm not talking about the monetization or the fame or anything like that. I'm just talking about if you're a journalist and you care about getting a story out there, mm-hmm. it is hard to look at that technology and say there's nothing good about it. So maybe I did find one good thing to say about social media this and, week. No, and and you know, these days you want the news as quickly as possible. You want to know what's going on, um, you know, um, I hate to say it, but these mass shootings, we, we want to know about it. We want to know where they are. And so, yeah, social media has changed a lot of what we do on television news. And, you know, I have to be honest with you, Ben, um, it was challenging for me in the beginning because by the time I sit down to do the 5 o'clock news or the 6 o'clock news, it's old news. You know, I'm I'm upset WHQR had the story before we did. And so, you know, our challenge now is to get the story on the web as quickly as possible. You know, we're still a business, a competitive business. And while we are partners with WHQR, you know, we we all still like to get that story first, right? And so um, that competitive edge is still there. And it just, in the beginning, there was pushback on social media. Now it's we embrace it and just have to understand, get it on as quickly as you can. I want to say this, though. WECT has a commitment, and I know WHQR does too, to make sure it is factual. We are not going to put it on the air until we have confirmed everything. The The last thing I want to do is have to go on the air and make an apology or a correction. You might as well send me home because it makes me sick to my stomach. Fortunately, we've only had to do that a few times Um so we do. We work very hard to make sure everything is accurate before we get it on the air or get it on the website or get it on social media. Um, but, yeah, there's the race to get it on. For sure. So that's the good side of social media, I think, because, you know, I'm a journalist. And I imagine if I wasn't, I would still want my news really, really fast. Knowing if I had a choice between, hey, I can I literally get this news right now in my phone, in my pocket, or I can wait until, you know, the evening news. I would want it right now. But then there's the comment section. Oh, my God, the comment section. Do you section. read the comment section or do you just stay out of there? I stopped. You know, when I stopped, I stopped after um, George Floyd's murder. Uh, I could not do it anymore because I was reacting. I'm, I'm a reactionary person anyway. But normally, you know, I wouldn't on social media. I'd read a comment that wasn't very nice or flattering. And I'd just, you know, okay, whatever. Um but they got so ugly and so nasty. I started responding, and the next thing I knew, I was in a battle with someone um, on my Facebook page or somewhere on social media, and I said, okay, this has got to stop. You know, and I think we as a television station try to monitor some of the comments because they get so outrageous that we have to just delete them. I mean, you ju- you're just not going to be able to say some of the things that you say if they're threatening or if the language is that atrocious, it's just not going to stay on our page. But, you know, the the nasty, ugly comments that are there, let people be who they are, but I'm just not going to read it. Fair enough. Uh, so you were mentioning about, you know, the 5 o'clock broadcast. For people who don't know, who just assume that, you know, maybe you just roll in there at 445 and <laughs> do I the wish. news. What is your day like these days? My day, well, it has been nuts. Um, really all of my career, to be honest with you, because I have an abnormal schedule. I normally go in in the afternoons. We have a 3 o'clock meeting, and I normally get in in time for that. 
and then we're, you know, writing stories, checking stories. Then I do the 5 o'clock news. I do the 6 o'clock news. I take a dinner break. Sometimes I don't even leave my desk, though, to be honest with you. And then it's get ready for the 11 o'clock news. And then I'm there until well after midnight, sometimes 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. But here's the thing. Um, a night owl, I don't go to sleep. My sleeping habits are horrible. And when I finally do go to sleep, it's like clockwork. I'm going to be up no later than 9 o'clock in the morning. And the first thing I'm going to do is grab my phone, make sure we didn't miss anything. And, um, you know, people in the newsroom will tell you, when does she sleep? Because I'll send an email at 3 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. So I have a crazy schedule. And I think there's also a myth about anchors that – they're in some way divorced from the news reporting part of it or the the news hound part of it. Like they just read the scripts. I think Will Ferrell has done a lot of damage to what Americans think about anchors. Oh, uh, yeah. But you're a news junkie. I am a news junkie. And uh, my twin sister, Margaret, would tell you that I'm obsessed with news. I'm not obsessed with it. It's just in my blood. And I think for those of us who are true journalists, you have to kind of be a news hound. Uh, there's so much news around us. And again, we're a business and we're a competitive business. So, you know, I'm always making sure we've got the story. I'm always making sure that, you know, if there's an exclusive interview, we're going to get it. Um, that's just the, the competitive part in me. But I just, I'm just a news hound. I am born and raised. I truly believe that. And um, so... I go to bed at night thinking about news, and I wake up in the morning thinking about news. Okay, so last thing. uh, Usually when people get to the point in their career where days are getting named after them, (laughs) people start throwing around the word retirement. (laughs) They do. It doesn't feel like where you're coming from right now. You know what is so interesting, and I feel extraordinarily fortunate? Very few people have asked me that. They have said, congratulations on 40 years, but no one has said, and I anticipated it, um, so are you retiring? Very few people have asked me that. Um, If I could give you an idea of when that is, I would, because I just would tell you, I have no idea, Ben. Right now, I love my job. I love what I do. I feel just as relevant today, even more so than I did 20 years ago, when some people would say that was when I was at the peak of my career. I think I'm at the peak of my career, but I'm still going. And I love the fact that uh, we have viewers who make me feel comfortable in my spot. You know, we had a Sounds of Summer concert the other day, And this little girl kept staring at me. She could not have been any older than 12 years old. And she finally walked over and she said, I just wanted to tell you, I'm a big fan. She has no idea what that meant to me. You know, the older people who have watched me for years, and I even have people who will come over and say, my grandmother loves you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) But even that person knew who I was. That 12-year-old saying that, though, said, you know, people are not looking at you like, oh, God, when is she going to leave? I'm sure there's some out there who are wondering. Uh, but I can't answer that because I seriously don't know. I just recently signed a new contract, 
And so I hope that when that time comes that I need to hang it up. Um, I'll know it before anyone tells me. Every time I do a new contract, I tell my news director and my general manager, uh, my only hope is that I know when it's time to call it a day. I don't want to be the person who's called in and said, you know, we're, we're thinking about going in a different direction or things of that nature. And I have been so blessed, and they have not ask me or even hint at that they have even asked me to stay a little bit longer so I'm just gonna continue on this rodeo until I know it's time for me to call it a day I'm not there yet I don't think you're gonna be there for some time to be honest thank you Ben you are welcome and I should say that you do all of this in addition to the stuff you do for the community uh, hosting events, friends, fans, all that stuff. I don't know where you fit that in in the day. That's a whole other interview. Well, last week, if you could have just been a fly on the wall or just ba- basically taken a, a seat in the back seat, because I was in three different counties in two different days, starting at 5.30 a.m. and going until 7.30 p.m. It was nuts. But you know what? Uh, friends, fans, for example, we collected more fans than... I ever imagined we actually had too many fans so we had to share with some other counties which was a good problem but um, I always say that what I do off the off the anchor desk is just as important as what I do on and some of the community things that I do friends fans and Weller's wheels um, that is near and dear to my heart that is um, truly a huge part of what I do well it is it is good work I don't know how you get it all in a day, but I'm glad you do. Fran Weller, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ben. Okay, well, we've got to take a break, but we'll be back in just a moment with WHQR's Rachel Keith as we dig into her reporting from this week on the missing results of a $10 million study on preventing school violence. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. With us now is our own Rachel Keith to unpack her reporting this week on the missing results of a $10 million federal grant. The grant funded a study in the mid-2000s on an issue that has never been more relevant, school safety. It's a big, frustrating, tragic, and kind of mysterious story, and we knew we'd need some time to really get into it. So, Rachel, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. So this week you had a story about over $10 million in grant funding, and this was in the mid-2000s. It went to the New Hanover County School District and UNCW, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, to look at um, issues in the school, violence um, prevention in the school, and all of the evidence of this grant and the extensive study work that came out of it is missing. So it's a little bit of a mystery story that has been made very relevant in the last couple of weeks by a series of mass shootings, including one in Uvalde, Texas. So I want to back all the way up and start with 
How did you begin to start to try and unravel this mystery? I believe it's a tip that you and I got in September. It was right after the new Hanover High School shooting that was in August. And so people uh, started talking about in the community, politicians, uh, what do we do to make sure that this does not happen again? And you and I received a tip saying, hey, I remember this grant that was about $10 million that the school system received to work on violence prevention. So can you look into it? And I found Dr. Carrie Clements. She's at UNCW. And she was the lead evaluator of this program. And so I talked to her about what she did, and so I got on to trying to understand through other agencies if they had this documentation of this grant that she did, and it was called the uh, Safe Schools and Healthy Students Initiative, and it was sponsored from the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, Department of Education, and the Department of Justice. And so you went through the the regular journalistic footwork of trying to track this down from the federal government side, which includes multiple agencies. You got SAMHSA, you got the DOJ, you got the Department of Ed, and you were able to find a description of the grant program. But when it came to specific grants issued to New Hanover County Schools and UNCW, all of that came up empty. It did. I... I started looking in September of last year. I stayed in close contact with Dr. Clements. Um, I even talked to somebody at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services about where I could find these. I also put in a public records request with New Hanover County Schools. I told them it was a federal grant, but they told me to look at county or state documents. Uh, But I got on the phone with their public information officer in the next couple of months and Russell Clark was trying to help me track down where these documents would have been. Nothing. And one of the culprits, it sounds like, is that people don't have access to these computers that were in service in 2005, 7. They switched uh, email servers. They can't find any of the documentation. Um, In January and February, again, those federal agencies told me, no, we don't have it. UNCW in April said they don't even have it, and that was Carrie, uh, her employer. And I got a statement from their attorney, Stephen Miller. He said, in part, that I think that record retention schedules, turnover of people, replacement of computers, drivers, and servers, and the fact that the university's email system was replaced over five years ago resulted in these records no longer existing on campus. Sorry about that result. So then I started calling people. I called the sheriff's office. I called District Attorney Ben David's office because Sheriff McMahon and Ben David could have had knowledge because they were in uh, the political power during this time of this grant. They said they didn't. Um, I tried to talk to Commissioner Jonathan Barfield, who also was elected in the mid-2000s, later 2000s. I didn't hear back from him. So I started getting on the phone trying to call people and... Nothing. Yeah. And I want to say a couple of things here. Um, you know, in the past, we have talked about our issues with transparency. But I will say uh, Steve Miller at uh, UNCW has always been very responsive to our requests. They really did work hard trying to they find did. this. And they were honest about, you know, the the, the turnover. We've now New Hanover County. Uh, we've also seen in other contexts has lost a lot of documentation. Sometimes they have found it again. But there's definitely been issues with people turnover, technology turnover. 
This was from a while ago. But again, I want to reiterate, according to Dr. Clements, this was not a minor deal. This was no. over $10 million that went to the school district and to UNCW involved thousands of pages of documentation. A lot of people were involved. How many, uh, Dr. Clements told you how many people were actually involved in this? Yes, she said that she had 23 undergraduate students, nine graduate students, and then UNCW actually had a project manager as well. So this was a large operation. I mean, they got tons of money, millions of dollars to do all of this work. And we'll talk about that in a moment, what they did. But I mean, and then we have nothing. Actually, the only thing that I really have at this point is Dr. Clements on the record and her providing all the information that she can give me. Uh, and then we found an article from 2007 that WECT posted because part of the grant was Carrie or Dr. Clements was sending in mock intruders into the schools to test the security system of the schools and most of the time her intruders got got past uh the school personnel and i'm so glad you brought this up because i was starting to feel a little unhinged it's yeah. not that i don't trust you and it's not that i don't trust <laughs> dr clements at uncw she's a very reputable professor and a psychologist would have no reason to make up something so outlandish but in the absence of any other evidence i was starting to feel like I was not on stable ground and finding this ECT article made me feel a lot better. And then I should add that after we published the story, a listener sent us a link to a Star News article from the same time as the WECT article about this same intruder program that mentions Dr. Clements. It mentions the federal grant. It's more about the actual intruder study and the reaction to that. So it doesn't give us a lot more details on the grant itself. But again, it was another piece of the puzzle that helps us feel more confident that, yes, this was a real thing. It really existed. We're not the crazy ones. So it is very difficult to sort of get your arms around this. But I do believe that from your reporting that this grant did exist. It was a lot of money. And it was a number of years, too. It was I think you told me it was five years and they extended it to seven years. Yes. So okay. for years, millions of dollars, dozens of people uh, were all working on this. And I think, you know, moving a little bit forward. Um, so the tragedy is first that all of this work is just kind of evaporated, but also the kind of work they're doing really relevant right now really relevant. And what Dr. Clements on the record, and this was in my reporting from this week, uh, said that what she did, her and her team, she was successful in reducing violent incidences at schools in New Hanover. She measured her work. She did trainings with staff. She did curriculum training with students. And she also worked with, she said, 28 community agencies to help deliver this messaging around promoting pro-social behavior, working on social emotional learning, working on anti-bullying prevention in the schools. So a lot of inside the walls type of uh, work that are we need to change the culture of our schools rather than, you know, focusing on the security measures because according to her and her grant work, her mock intruders got past a lot of those those hard barriers that we put a lot of money into, according to her. And you mentioned this. Uh, uh, Dr. Clements, on the record, is very emotional about all of this being lost. She's very upset. She also has racked her brain herself and went through all her own personal computers to find it. And she can't. But she was willing to give me an on-record interview to tell me what she learned. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in your reporting this week, it's not a direct dichotomy, but there's definitely two schools of thought about violence prevention. And we're seeing this in the county, in their efforts to deal with what's called community violence. And on the one hand, you've got reactive kind of law enforcement infrastructure-based things. So these are, you know, the SRO who's in the school, who has a gun, who in theory would respond to a shooting or in the broader community, you know, law enforcement in general. And then you've got the reasons people commit crime, the root causes of crime, which is a much deeper and more complicated issue. So in our community, we're talking about poverty, lack of access to uh, fresh food. We're talking about housing crisis. We're talking about domestic violence, jobs, drug use, all of us, right? And a lot of this is tangled up with the ugly history of systemic racism in the United States. A lot of it has to do with economic stratification. There's a lot. And taking that on is difficult. And that's the same inside the school. I think it is not cheap, and this is not to diminish the work of SROs, but it is relatively easy from a political point of view to say, we're going to hardscape the school, meaning we're going to put up fences and security cameras and stuff like that, and we're going to put an SRO in every school. Because I just told you the whole plan in five seconds. That's the whole plan. Right. And what Dr. Clements was talking about is really dealing with sort of mental health issues, and I want to be clear here that I'm not talking about mental illness because there is this misunderstanding, as you've explained to me, that when we're talking about mass shootings, most of the time we're not talking about people who are bipolar and schizophrenic. We end up sort of inadvertently demonizing people with mental health issues like that when we're talking about this. We're talking about a broad umbrella of mental health. So ACEs, so adverse childhood experiences, we're talking about bullying, we're talking about you know kids having interpersonal conflicts, and dealing with all that, as she explained to you, is complicated and it takes time and it's not as easy as just saying, okay, well, we'll have some more cops in the school. Right. And part of Dr. Clement's work, she went into communities. And if you listen to my reporting uh, earlier this week, we were talking about she worked in communities all the way from Creekwood to Landfall. And she did mention going into some of these neighborhoods and talking to people about what could be done to help them process interpersonal conflict. And that's where most students are killed, right? It's not in these mass shootings. Most students are killed when there is some type of fight between people, gangs, et cetera, and it gets resolved with guns. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that people under 21 don't have guns to resolve their fights because that would solve a lot of problems. It's really a lot harder to kill somebody with your fist than with a gun, right? But the socio-emotional learning is what's going to stop that, right? And interestingly enough, when we went into poorer communities where the vast majority of these killings take place, they taught us what we needed to do. I remember meeting with some grandmoms and and they said, you know, you can't live in our community and not fight back, right? So you go in the schools, you're not allowed to fight, but in our community, if you don't fight back, you're at a disadvantage, right? And I'm like, well, what if we did it different? You know, what what if we, we, you know, we could teach people not to fight back, but what if in your community, what if in the schools you didn't fight? to, you know, you just didn't. That was that was what was not done on schools. And we taught middle school and high school students to not fight. 
So there you have Dr. Clements saying that she and her team did seven years of work to kind of restructure a school's culture, to work with students, to work with families, to talk about ways to handle conflict. And she was an active participant in the schools, according to her, in making sure that these violent incidences were decreased and according to her that's what the grant showed is that because of her work these incidences went down and the way the grant was set up you know as you as you get into in your reporting is that you know it had a built-in kind of oversight and effectiveness review system built into it so it wasn't just that they felt good about it it's that they were actively looking at how it was working and that was some of what this the studies coming out of the grant would have represented Right. She said that she uh, used referrals, discipline referrals to look at. Um, and she said she made reports annually and uh, quarterly, biannually. She also created her own surveys to look at violent incidences over time in the schools. And she also used the CDC's youth risk behavior surveys. They still do that as well. And so she was also looking into those numbers. So she was evaluating the curriculum that she was putting out, that her team was putting out, and making sure that it was having an impact. And she was providing these reports, according to her. And again, we don't have access to those. So it was both quantitative data, you know, numbers of referrals and and incidences, but also qualitative data, you know, students talking about their own lived experience. That's right. So, I mean, that to me is just the real tragedy here, is that that has all been lost. All that work, all that data, which would be, and I want to pivot a little bit here to that would be very useful right now because, and again, these are two different schools of thought and they do overlap a little bit, but what Dr. Clements is talking about, the kind of approach to violence in the schools is very different than what our community is doing right now. There is mental health care being made available to students, but if you look at dollars and cents, you know, the money going into SROs, I think, and you had this in your reporting, you know, she talked about why not spend that money if From her point of view, she was saying, my research is showing SROs aren't effective. Why not use that money for school psychologists? Right. And she has her own uh, small psychotherapy practice, and she's trying to refer. She said, for example, a 10th grader to another uh, psychologist or another clinical health care worker. And she said the waiting period can be up to three months. And the Star News reported uh, not too long ago a report card made by the America's School a mental health report card, and essentially, this is what New Hanover County Schools looks like. We uh, the recommended number is one counselor for every 250 students, one social worker to ever every 250 students, one psychologist to every 500 students. And right now, there's 307 students per counselor, 533 students per social worker, and 1,452 students per psychologist. So. Yeah. You know, I had this conversation with Judge Jay Corpening, uh, who has spent years on the bench of juvenile justice, and he's very—he's been very invested in this. He was part of that initial group meeting between county commissioners and board of education members and other public stakeholders. That was the origin of the county's response to community violence after the shooting at New Hanover High School last year. He was—he was very outspoken during that. Um, he's a big fan of social emotional learning. He's been a big proponent 
of inside the walls work. I think he seems to agree with Dr. Clements quite a bit on that. And in our conversation, you know, we reflected on it's it's much more expensive. Any budget of any organization, including the government, personnel is going to be your top cost. You know, unless you're building aircraft carriers, your number one cost is going to be people. And these are qualified professionals. They are not cheap. You know, and so no. after if you've been around for a while and you followed the the cycle of political dialogue after every shooting, going back to Columbine, mental health always comes up, but actually addressing it costs money. We're talking about investing in in qualified professionals who are in the schools, and that is not cheap. You have to really mean it, and you have to sustain it. Yeah, and in this fiscal year, the county has appropriated about $1.9 million for SROs in the schools, and I think now they are trying to do one SRO in every elementary school. And according to Dr. Clements, she says that she thinks that goes in the wrong direction. She said, I think this is proof from her intruder work that, uh, you know, intruders can get in if they really want to. And also she's very critical of the permissive gun laws in our country and in our state. And she was also talking about we hear about these mass shootings. They have these high capacity assault rifles and how can an SRO be there at the exact same time when they're killing people or uh, you know how can they be in the right place at the right time in these extenuating circumstances and I know this is statistically rare but they are happening and they do raise these questions of the good guys being there at the right time with the guns to fight off the person that is quote-unquote bad with the gun. Yeah, a couple things here where I think our reporting can go even further. And uh, and I throw this out to journalists in the Wilmington area in general because, you know, it takes a village, et cetera, et cetera. It does. But, you know, one of the things is there's a lot of data on the effectiveness of inside-the-walls, mental health-based, um, social-emotional learning-based care for this problem. It's expensive. It takes time. But there's data. Although we've lost this particular set of data, there are a lot of other studies. And... I would like to see the data on SRO effectiveness. Uh, in two, for, and there's two parts of this. One is what you're talking about, which is that um, a single SRO is not John McClain. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go rent Die Hard. <laughs> uh, the first two are good. Get, the series gets bad for that. But, you know, that is way too much. And I say this from – I am not disparaging law enforcement. No, but that is way too yeah. much to ask for a single officer to stop someone who's armed with a high-power uh, high capacity weapon. That's just, you would have, any responsible person would wait for law enforcement to show up. So if that's the case, SROs, I think, are giving us a false sense of security against the statistically rare incidences of a what we what we think of when we, when we hear mass shooter. We're thinking of a lone wolf. We're thinking of someone who has, if not a death wish, they're willing to get hurt. You know, they are not afraid. They're going into a school with a weapon to kill. And so that is a job for a SWAT team, not a single SRO. I think most law enforcement people would agree with that. You might be able to slow them down, but it's just that's way too much to expect from SRO. So that's right. one part of it. The other part of it is the vast majority, and Dr. Clements talks about this. I talked about this with Judge Corpening. Statistically, over half of homicides in the United States, according to the FBI, come from handguns. And a big chunk, about a third of the deaths by firearms in general, don't specify which kind of weapon it is. But it's handguns is the preponderance. They're easier to get in through security. Uh, and you can do almost as much damage with a handgun as you can with a long gun. At, at close range, you can kill a lot of people in a short period of time, and that's what we're worried about. And there is nothing on the books right now to get rid of handguns. 
even the most liberal person in Congress doesn't dream about banning handguns. That's not part of the American discussion right now. And I think if you want to be realistic about it, people like Judge Corpening, people like Dr. Clements, you've got to, if you can't change the culture, you've got to change the individual and get to them before they're in a place where they can, they're willing to kill someone with a handgun because both of them, Corpening and Clements, both, Corpening said to me, Clements said to you, about how easy it is to kill someone with a handgun in a moment of anger. Corpening told me a story about two relatives, I believe they were siblings, who kill each other over like a video game or remote control in just a moment of anger, just, right, and it's over. And it's much harder to kill someone with your fists. You know, a lot of people have this kind of nostalgia for the uh, schoolyard fights of yore, where people would just duke it out and be friends the next day. And I, I think there is a little sepia patina of nostalgia on that, but it's there's definitely a difference. And so that's part of the conversation I think we still need to explore. The other part is we've got to look at the effect of COVID. Because all the law enforcement officials we've talked to, including uh, people in the court system, said the last two years have been like nothing they've ever seen. And those are for teachers, too. And And counselors. And teachers are dealing with that because the violence is coming back off the street, back into the schools. And so if it was possible to look the other way on this issue before, I don't think it is anymore. And I will point out, Corpening told me a lot of the guns that he's seeing are being stolen from, from legal gun owners. Right, who leave their guns and their unlocked cars. To me, that struck me as crazy. Like, that can't be that common of a thing. Apparently, it's so common, it is like the number one driver of the availability of handguns in these crimes. Wow. So we've got people who aren't responsibly taking care of their guns, even though they are legal gun owners. You've got a whole generation of students whose lives have been turned upside down by COVID and are now going back into the schools, which are understaffed and undersupported. This is a nightmare cocktail. And I think on top of all of that, Right. You've got what appears to be a long term resistance to the kind of work that Dr. Clements is doing, which is about really putting in the work. And so I think that's where we, where we are right now. Yes. And partly I want to do this story because we have these issues right now in our current day. And I think if these reports ever turned up, they would really be instrumental in informing the way that we are doing anti-violence prevention work. And so I'm on the newsroom, too, to say that I'm still on this story, and I still would welcome anyone who took part in any of uh, Dr. Clement's work with the uh, with the Safe Schools initiative supported by federal agencies. So I feel that we're doing this work, and I'm hoping that we're with Port City United and the, the counties doing other initiatives, that they're evaluating the effectiveness of that work and they preserve it. So if we have these same problems 20 years down the road, we can go back and say, hey, that worked really well. Actually, let's not go there because that was a waste of money and time. So this is another thing to ask listeners and of ourselves how are we preserving these important documents that we might need to help inform us in the future definitely get a high quality thumb drive put it in the banker's (laughs) box please hold on to this stuff you never know what it's going to be important in the future you never know all right well good place to leave it for now rachel keith thank you so much for being here thank you ben Okay, well, we've got to take one more quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk with Nada Mergani about protesters stuck in legal limbo two years after the George Floyd protests and making the transition from advocate to reporter. This is WHQR's The Newsroom. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. At the top of today's show, we talked to Fran Weller, who worked her way from receptionist to reporter to anchor. Fran's been in the business for 40 years, but now I want to talk to someone who is just getting started, Nada Mergani. Nada's a freelance writer and former intern for WUNC and a student at North Carolina Central University. Nada, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So you recently wrote about people who were arrested during the summer of 2020. Tell me a little bit about this. Give me, give me the elevator pitch for this. Sure. So this was a story about how folks were charged uh, with low-level misdemeanors in the 2020 protest. Two years later, are still waiting to have their first court date. One of the things that you get into is what does it mean to be in this gray space, in this limbo, because you've been arrested, but your case hasn't been decided. How does that impact people? It's complicated because for a lot of folks, they assume that in this country we operate off this ideology of innocent until proven guilty. So they don't really realize that like having a pending charge on your file would have a real impact. But it impacts you similarly to how having an actual charge on your file would impact you. It still shows up on background checks. You still get denied from jobs as a result of it. You still get denied housing as a result of it. You're denied certain benefits as a result of it. And it does have a real impact on people's lives. There's an additional consequence of pending charges, which is, you know, when you are actually charged with something, you can talk about it, right? Like your lawyer can write a little statement of advocacy for you if you're applying for jobs and really kind of break down the situation. But if it's pending, you have to be hyper-restrictive with what you can say because, of course, anything can and will be used against you in court. You can't describe the details of your case the way someone who's already been charged has. So, like, that can make it difficult to, even more difficult to obtain jobs, obtain housing, because you can't talk about what happened. And if you are really innocent and if there's video proof showing your innocence and, you know, you, you just kind of have to stay silent until the court case that may take years to come happens. That would be bad enough, right? But some of these people that you talked to were caught up in mass arrests. Mm-hmm which is, I think, as one of your sources pointed out, not usually the way that the criminal justice system is designed to work. Right. There's supposed to be probable cause when it comes to arrest. There's supposed to be kind of like, there's supposed to be warrants. There's supposed to be sort of like a system to follow when it comes to arrest. But with mass arrest, and I can say this as someone who's been arrested during a mass arrest, they kind of just pick you up and throw you in a car, right? Like, I wasn't even searched uh, the first time that I was arrested at a mass arrest. So I had my phone on me. I was on Instagram Live in the paddy wagon. <laughs> so, like, so there's no search. Uh, I remember on the warrant, uh, sorry, I'm about to curse, but... No, we can bleep you out. Okay, cool. So I remember on the, not the warrant, on the police report, they wrote that I was in the street, in the street chanting, F- the 12. They can kind of say anything or do anything, even like things that sound illogical, things that like obviously didn't happen, regardless of whether there's video proof that it just didn't happen. And in my story, that was validated by the district attorney himself of Charlotte Mecklenburg County. So Spencer Merriweather was saying that a lot of these cases oftentimes are factually deficient. He said it was because of like the chaos of the scene. And like in his defense, like of course, protests are chaotic. You know, no one's gonna argue that they aren't, but With the knowledge that protests are chaotic, with the knowledge that oftentimes these things are factually deficient, wouldn't you either want to drop the charges or let people have their day in court instead of kind of letting people sit in this gray area because you're saying like, oh, it's a lower level misdemeanor. The courts are backed up. We don't have time to deal with this right now. I mean, it's part of the reason you have a constitutional right to a speedy trial, although there's an asterisk after the word speedy. Yeah. Again, if you were a person of means and had secure employment, 
you might be able to walk away from this unscathed, but if you're in a more precarious position in your life, especially financially, maybe not. Yeah. So let me ask you about this. Um, you have for a long time been an advocate. We have actually spoken uh, with you in that capacity, but now you are a journalist. What has that been like? It's been a really interesting transition. There's so much to think about with this because I will say when I came into WNC, there was almost like a confusion at first of like, how do we deal with this? You know, like how do we deal with someone who's like currently has pending charges, like very deeply involved in the protest scene? How do we deal with this with journalistic integrity? And for me, like that was something new that I had to navigate as well as like trying to dictate whether I'm too close to a story or not. Um, And for me, like, that was also a struggle because, like, I've never seen a white journalist be told, like, because this story is happening in white communities or because the story is, like, that you can't be a part of it because you're too close to this community. I think for me that there's, like, there's a reasonability in that, right, of understanding what those limitations are. But at times it just, it feels over the top. So I think for me, like, I, I'm definitely starting to, the process of learning that balance of, like, am I too close to the story or, like, am I actually, like, the only person who has a dedication to this story and telling it accurately, you know, or understanding the complications or, like was discussed in my story, the gray areas of the story. Yeah, I think a lot of newsrooms deal with that line that can be super blurry between someone who has lived experience or subject matter experience and someone who is just, who has crossed the line into advocacy and is using journalism, not as journalism, but as advocacy. And I think, you know, that's gotten tougher over the last couple of decades, you know, especially as newsrooms, I mean, just be candid, right? As newsrooms are trying to diversify and have people who aren't sort of just, you know, cisgender, middle-aged white guys in those newsrooms, you're more likely to have a reporter who's going to be the target of, say, Uh, legislation that affects a marginalized community Mm -hmm. or more likely to be the victim of police brutality or a criminal justice system that's not working the way it's supposed to. Um, So I'm sure that experience will not be simple to navigate. I'm glad you're navigating it. After this story, which was really good, and we'll have a link to it, uh, what are you working on next? So I am about to start working on a piece with Jeff Taylor, who's also an incredible journalist, discussing the idea of reimagining pride. Um, and reimagining pride in a way that's more connected to its roots as a movement to fight against police violence and police brutality against the LGBTQ community. And with like formerly and currently incarcerated trans people being at the forefront of that fight. So one of the things that we're exploring is kind of talking to trans women who've experienced incarceration, whether they're currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, and talking about like what pride has become in and the way that that has shifted black trans women, especially, and I really want to emphasize, like currently and formerly incarcerated black trans women far away from the forefront and almost outside of these pride movements altogether. Because what pride has become is kind of this movement to be physically visible in the streets and in shopping shelves, right? Like you want to see rainbow colored things at Target and Walmart and you want to be able to party in the street one month a year or for a couple of days in that one month a year. But for folks who quite literally do not have the ability to be that visible, that disappears them from the pride movement. And that, from what I understand historically about Stonewall, it was never really what this was supposed to be about. This was supposed to be about protecting the most marginalized members of the queer community, um, but it seems like there's such a large disconnect. We have heard the critique here in Wilmington that, on the one hand, 
public visibility is good. It's good for fundraising for nonprofits that are, that are helping marginalized people. It's good for winning sort of hearts and minds against bigots or the, you know, people who could be swayed. But on the other hand, there is a frustration that pride in some places has become about appeasing the mainstream instead of protecting the margin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, without question. Well, I look forward to that story. Uh, Nada, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for your time. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guests today, Fran Weller, Rachel Keith, and Nada Morgani. And, of course, our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. And if you have any information or were part of the grant program we talked about in the segment with Rachel Keith, email her at rkeith at whqr.org. All right, I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>